Lord Jesus, we do ask that you would come upon us by the power of your Holy Spirit, that we might today learn some things that we can share with others as we begin this study of discipleship. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. So um, today we're going to begin a study that's going to go on throughout the fall. And you're going to hear from me some, but you're going to also hear from others because Ron's going to teach some, Paul's going to teach some. And Jonathan King, who belongs to our church and is a theologian, is going to teach at least two of the lessons before the fall is over. Uh, so that's the study is called... <clears throat> okay. The study is called Crisis of Discipleship, and I'm going to explain to you a little bit about how we get to that. Uh, I think this is a good follow-up on Ron's study that he did a few months ago, uh, because Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a theologian in Germany, a young, very young man, and actually somewhat inexperienced, uh, he, in the 1930s, wrote a book called Cost of Discipleship. Uh, and as I say in the book, uh, I can tell you, he was a theologian and he was German, and I can assure you that if he had not been martyred, none of us would have ever heard of him or read any of his books, uh, because he is a, a German writer and he writes in the German style, and only one of his books, a book called Life Together, is really very accessible to lay people. Uh, but that one book, Life Together, which we will learn about during the course of this, uh, is accessible. Well, in the book Cost of Discipleship, Dietrich Bonhoeffer complained about what he felt was the Protestant tendency to not disciple people, but to rely upon what he called cheap grace. That is, the forgiveness of sins without any response in the one that is forgiven, without any change of life. I'm not going to get into that today, because I can't remember who it is, but maybe it's Ron. Somebody is going to deal with that in about two weeks. Um, but today, we're going to introduce the study. So I thought the second thing I would do is tell you a little bit about why this is so important to me. Why is it so important to me? Uh, because I think that's something you need to know. In 19, first of all, I, I've been a Presbyterian 22 years longer than I've been a Christian. Uh, my parents uh, were both active in the Presbyterian church. My father was a deacon and elder. My mother was a deacon and elder. Uh, we went to church every Sunday. Uh, Tim and I were, my brother's Tim, were required to go to youth group, uh, and we were terribly ill-behaved. Uh, um, but when I went away to college, like a lot of people, my faith became secondary, and I gradually drifted away from the Christian faith, what little I had, uh, and really went through a very dark time in my life. Well, in 1977, in the spring of 1977, um, I was working at a large law firm, which, which at that time was called Bracewell & Patterson. It's called the Bracewell Firm now. Um, but I was uh, um, very unhappily single and uh, living all alone and not very popular in the law firm. Well, we had a secretarial coordinator named Cynthia Hesterly. And Cynthia, I won't, I, I will, I, I, the ladies would love to hear her story because she had had a boyfriend at Auburn. Uh, they were extremely in love until the wicked cheerleader stole him away from her. 
and uh, she had her heart broken. Uh, it turns out the wicked cheerleader was in fact wicked, uh, and uh, <laughs> her husband divorced her, was a lawyer down in Florida. Well, at the 10th anniversary of their graduation, Cynthia re-met this man, and they fell in love and decided to get married. And on her last day at Bracewell, I went up to say goodbye to her. And I tell people, secretarial coordinators have an interesting job at major law firms because basically one of their jobs is to explain to young new associates that we can replace you easier than we can replace her. Uh, th this experienced secretary is far more valuable to the law firm than you are, so you've got to treat her right. And Cynthia and I had become friends and had, had actually seen each other quite often. And she invited me to a Bible study at First Presbyterian Church of Houston, Texas, in a house. Now, I want you to stop and think. If you were going to get married one week from today, you had to move to Florida, get all your stuff there. This was your last night with your friends. Would you invite somebody to that Bible study? I think it's remarkable that she did. She did, and I went. And without going into great detail, uh, by August of 1977, I was a very committed Christian and have been so ever since. That Bible study, by the way, is important to me for other reasons because there was a young lady there with curly hair who, <laughs> who I met and married. Uh, so without, without the Friday night Bible study, there's no Chris and Kathy. And I can assure you I wouldn't be here today. So, so that discipleship has always been important to me. Helping people grow in their faith in small groups has always been important. Uh, when I went off to seminary, we always had a small group at, in Houston. Uh, I had a small group in the law firm. I had a small group in a Jewish law firm I was a part of for a while. Um, I've always uh, had small groups in my church. And Kathy and I have inevitably belonged to at least one and usually more than one of those small groups when I was in the pastorate. Uh, so that what we're going to talk about today is very important to me, and I think it's important to the church because I think in the future the churches that do not make disciples will die. In our country today, you're going to see, I'm going to talk about it more next week, the churches that cannot make disciples simply will not be able to make it through the 21st century. Uh, so it's important to this church and every church that we get our mind around how to make disciples. So with that introduction, assuming I know how to do this, Somebody read for us these words, which I'm sure none of you have ever heard before. Who wants to read them? Somebody with a big voice. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things. So, for the next 17 weeks, every week, we're going to be on this text. We may not read this text, but some part of what's in this text we'll be talking about for the next 17 weeks. But just to begin with, what do you see? What do you see? First of all, what is it? It's the Great Commission. Now, I want to stop there and say that I always say this. Jesus never said, go big, build church buildings. He never said, go have a million-dollar organ. 
He never said, go have a great praise band. He never said, go have a 4,000-member church. What did he say? Make disciples. That's what he said. That's the only thing he told us to do. The rest of what we do is an extrapolation from that one thing that he told us he wanted us to do. So we need to know. We're going to make disciples. So what's a disciple? We're going to learn more about that in a few weeks. But just for today, what's a disciple? A follower of Jesus. Once again, everything we need to know is in that answer. <laughs> a follower of Jesus. So the person who, who gave that answer? I can't remember. All right. So <clears throat> is it a knower about Jesus? Is it an acceptor of Jesus? No. It's a follower of Jesus. And that gets us to the second part. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That is, bringing them inside of the church. I'll stop there and say, uh, this little text should tell us that the church is not optional. Baptism is a right of the church. So as far back as we go in church history, as far back as we go to Jesus, he intends for there to be a church and disciples to be part of a church. So we're going to, bat, we're going to bring them into the church. How big does that church have to be? Not very big, right? Let's take this verse, for example. Wherever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am also, right? So it can be two. I like to say the first century churches, how many of you ever been to the Holy Land and been like to Capernaum and seen the ruins there? How big are those houses? Not very big. So if there were 10 people in some of those houses, that was the church. That was the church. <laughs> uh, and some of those houses, 10 people with their children would have been pretty crowded. By the way, uh, my view about why it is that women, it's okay for women to speak in church is I just can't believe you had five women and five men in a room and they, women weren't talking. That's to me, is not a very logical possibility. Maybe it could happen. Um, okay, then the next one is teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So it's not enough for a person to make a commitment to Jesus, is it? Because we're not asked just to have them make a commitment. What are we asked to do? To teach them to observe, or in some translations, obey, to teach them to live as I have taught you to live, to teach you to walk through life the way I've taught you to walk through life. So one of the things we're going to learn in the next 16 weeks is when a new believer comes into the church, is our job done? It's just begun. When a person is baptized, our job isn't finished. It's just begun. Um, now, this is very meaningful to me because uh, unlike Ron and others, I'm a great sinner. Uh, and when I became a Christian, I didn't suddenly become a great a, a, a perfect person. Kathy's had to work. She's still working on this. Um, but fortunately, in that little Bible study that I was in, there were young couples and some young men who took me under their wing and who for the next 14 years were very important in my Christian development. Uh, they taught me how to be a Christian husband, how to be a Christian businessman, how to be a Christian lawyer. How to, they, I modeled my life after them for a long, 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 long time. 
And that, their teaching of me was very important. And most of that teaching, by the way, did not occur in a Sunday school class. Some of it did occur in a small group. Of but a lot of it occurred in life as we were together with each other. All right. Now, <clears throat> lest we think, and what can we rely upon? Well, whose power can we rely upon in this process? The Holy Spirit. Because Jesus promises he will be with us till the end of the age. That means, quite frankly, that no matter how good a disciple maker you are, it's still all a matter of grace. It's still all a matter of grace. All right. Now, I just love this. My uh, best friend and former co-pastor is a guy named Dave Schieber. Yesterday was his 81st birthday. Uh, Dave always quoted this at least once a year in sermons and more than once a year at staff meetings. The church is always one generation away from extinction. That is to say, if we don't reach out to the next generation, what happens? It's gone. And how long does that gone take? Anybody want? Well, a generation is 20 years. A generation is 20 years. Now, in the mainline churches, and I count us as still a mainline church. We're sort of, I'd say the we're eco's quasi-mainline. Uh, the fact is, most Mainline denominations have lost more than half their members in 20 years. And they're old. And what does it mean to be an old church? Well, the answer to that question is, an old church is by definition a dying church. Or as I like to say about myself, I'm 73, I'm no longer really on the front nine, I'm no longer on the first half of the back nine, I'm somewhere in 16 and a half, right? <laughs> and so, uh, if we don't bring in a new generation, the church goes away. And so, disciple making is very important, very important. And I might add, just to stop here, we can mask it for a while you're going to see them in a minute, uh, with techniques that bring people to church. But are attenders disciples? No. Are attenders the leaders of the church? No. Do attenders teach the Sunday school classes? No. It's the disciples that do all the things that make the church function. Okay? All right. So, here are some key statistics that you might want to know. First of all, only 20% of Americans attend church every week. In other words, out there in San Antonio today, 80% of the people are at Starbucks, if they're up yet. 41% of Americans go to church uh, monthly. Okay, 40, only 40. 57% of Americans are seldom or never in religious service attendance. That's more than half. If you want to wonder why our country's in such such trouble, that little statistic tells you everything you need to know. More than half the people today are not Christians. They may go on Christmas Eve or a service or Easter to make mom happy or Mother's Day to make mom happy, uh, but the rest of the time they're not in church. Regular church attendance in America has steadily declined since the turn of the century. Okay, by the way, I think that's the 20th century. Uh, so for 123 years, Church attendance in America has been in gradual decline, okay? And, and I think there's some reasons for that. We'll, you're going to learn a lot about that in 17 weeks. So what's the future? I don't know if you can see this grim future here. 
Uh, but that's an empty church. <laughs> that's an empty church. The future we face is an empty church. If we don't make disciples, the church is one generation away from extinction. Okay, what won't work? With great apologies to Ron, who is a super preacher. Um, first of all, super preachers don't work. We've tried it. Okay, super preachers don't work. They might build one church, and maybe it has 20,000 people. Well, there are 330 million Americans. So it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And secondly, unfortunately, I, Dave Schieber taught me this, lots of times it turns out they fall. Lots of times they fall. <laughs> uh, we've all lived through it. Um, I was a great fan of Bill Hybels at a point in my life, and it was a great personal moment to me when he fell. Uh, and there are others out there. So super preachers, we thank God for good preachers, but that won't work. Super worship, well, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. I have to tell you, first of all, super, and by I say super worship, it can be super worship down there with the organ, or it can be super worship over there. There's all kinds of super worship. <laughs> what? What did I do? Oh. Well, now I don't know what happened. Did I step on something? Ah! All right. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So, super worship unfortunately, doesn't work for two reasons. First of all, an emotional response is not necessarily a spiritual response. I'm, I'm an okay preacher, and I can guarantee you, give me the right praise band, give me the right sermon, and I can move people for 25 minutes, okay? But that doesn't mean anybody ever really changed. That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit ever moved in their lives. That's the first reason, emotion. The second reason is, I tell people, preaching is inherently limited in what it can do to change a person's life because people will not stand up and say, Pastor, I don't agree with that, and if I do, I think you're wrong. They just won't in the middle of a sermon. People are nice. So only in a small group can people voice their real concerns. As a pastor, I can tell to tell people, because he, he did more work with youth than I ever did. The fact is, it's amazing what young people will tell you when you're in a small group with them. And it's amazing what they won't tell you when they're in your office or when you're in a position of authority over them. But it's amazing what you learn about children if you're just talking to them and what they will really express to you about where they really are in life. Okay, next. Super programs won't work. This is one... Now I'm preaching to myself. All pastors of large churches, and this is a large church, have to have programs. You can't reach 4,000 people without a program. But what happens when you've got all these programs? What do you spend your time doing? Programming. Managing programs. It takes a lot of time to manage Sunday school, youth group, divorce ministries, pastoral care ministries, Stevens ministries, all these ministries. It takes endless hours of the senior pastor's time. And so as a result, programs don't work because they're programs. Why do they sometimes work? What does, do they provide? Personal contact, is that what you said? I said discipleship. discipleship. 
They only work if there's somebody in that program who's right on the ground with somebody discipling people. But the program itself is just, you know, it's the structure. It's not the thing itself. And finally, super advertising. Super advertising, in my opinion, is the least likely thing to work in this case. Why? Why? I, I tell the story. In my father's generation, and this happened over and over again, lawyers or businessmen would be on, they, on a business trip. They would go to New York City. They would see a sign, Billy Graham, Madison Square Garden tonight. They would go. They would get saved in Madison Square Garden by Billy Graham. But in my children's generation, if they were in New York and they saw that sign, what would they do? They'd laugh at it, and then they'd go out to dinner and a show. Uh, so that the, the, the advertising doesn't really bring people to church unless they're already inclined to go to church, which is why, and I'm gonna, you're going to see, why megachurches have not been a good thing in America, because what do megachurches do? Anybody know what they do? They shoot members from small churches without good programming to them. But they do not disciple people. One of the things Willow Creek really learned about themselves is Willow Creek was in Chicago. It's a very Catholic area of the country. And the basic thing they were doing is moving lapsed Catholics to Willow Creek. That was their basic business. And that's been, by the way, that was true of the church I had in, in Ohio. So advertising won't work. What will work is discipleship. What does work is people talking to people about the Lord and then bringing them into the Christian faith. Now, I don't know what I did. Somehow, when I step on one particular thing here, Well, I hate to do it because I just feel like when I do this, this is going to be a disaster. Yep, it was. All right. Ha! Okay. All right. So what is discipleship? That's one of the things we wanted to get to today. Discipleship is the process of growing in Christ-likeness through a sustained relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So discipleship is not a one-time event. It's a process. It's a lifetime process of growing into Christ-likeness, of growing toward being more like Jesus, okay, uh, through a sustained relationship with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, this is going to be the big point of a lot of the series. That word relationship tells us another big thing. How are people discipled? In a relationship, okay? A relationship with God and a relationship with someone or some group of people who are going to help them grow closer to God, right? Because God's not just, well, he does occasionally, but he's not normally doesn't just poof into somebody's life. Someone has to tell that person about Christ and then walk with that person about Christ. So a disciple maker is just a person who helps another person in coming to Christ and growing to Christ. 
So when we're a disciple maker, we might be like what you women would call a midwife. We're just a helper. We're helping another person to find Jesus and to grow into a relationship with God. That's what we're doing. And along the way, we may give them some advice. Along the way, we may give them some teaching. Along the way, we may let them know some principles. Uh, but we're really there to help them grow, okay? Not for us to grow. Now, let's see what happens next. Ah. So, back to Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in this little book, it's, it's actually called Discipleship. It was published as Cost of Discipleship in America uh, after the war and but it actually, it's discipleship. He warned about cheap grace. Cheap grace is the idea that forgiving, sin, that forgiving sins can be preached as an intellectual acceptance that requires no response from a new believer. Just does not require any change of life. So I'll tell you, I'm just absolutely opposed to that kind of evangelism. Okay? <laughs> absolutely, positively, 100% opposed. For a long time, Kathy and I were pastors in little Brownsville, Tennessee. These people here know what Brownsville was. Uh, and Brownsville did have 138 Presbyterians, uh, but it, it had who knows how many Baptists. Well, every year, uh, being the Presbyterian pastor and their being concerned that I might need to be saved, they invited me to the revivals. So every year I went to the campground revivals. And we were there five years, and the first year I saw people go forward, and the second year I noticed that some of the people that had gone forward the first year were coming forward again, and by the fifth year I sort of knew who was going to come forward. Coming forward is a good thing. Don't let, I'm, I've made a joke here, but coming forward is a good thing. And it's an important thing because it's a little bit embarrassing to be out in front of people, uh, uh, and so you have to overcome your own shyness to do it. Uh, but it's not discipleship, it's a moment. It's a moment. It's a moment when you change the course of your life, but it's not the thing itself. The thing itself will have to occur over a long period of time. And frankly, the church all over America has dispensed this cheap grace, that is, we have acquired members without making them disciples or requiring anything of them. Uh, here's just a fact. Churches... They've done studies about this. Churches that have strong requirements for membership are actually much stronger and grow faster over time, over long periods of time, than churches that bring in a crowd and have low standards for membership. So that uh, a church that truly disciples people, truly expects changes, truly expects the Christian walk over time, not immediately, but over time, those churches actually are healthier and grow faster. Okay, so this is it. Jesus said, make disciples, not members. This is for all church members, and particularly pastors. This is something we have to focus our attention on. Jesus did not say, bring members to First Presbyterian Church. I have to tell you, as a pastor, worried about the future of his church, worried about the budget, what did I care about most of the time? Members. It, it required some reorientation of Chris to say that's not what's important here. What's important is discipleship. Membership is just sort of a sideline to that. But this discipleship is what we're going to do. So Jesus wants us to help people become Christ followers. We used the word before. People who follow Jesus 
in and live out the gospel in all of life. That, that's what Jesus wants us to do and to be. Uh, and that's the true job. So one of the things, you know, whenever we're trying to do something, the, have you ever, the right thing in the wrong way? I do that all the time. I'm doing the right thing, but I'm doing it the wrong way. Um, well, we need to do the right thing the right way, and the right thing the right way is make disciples. Some, lots of those people are going to end up in our church. Did I go to First Baptist Church when First Presbyterian Church people brought me to Christ? No, I went to First Presbyterian Church. Uh, but that, our real job is we're making disciples, and if they end up across the street at First Baptist Church, well, that's okay. That's okay. Because uh, that's, that's God at work in their lives, and we're not in charge of what God does in their lives. All right. Now... Two essential principles. These are, this is really important, and it's going to be reaffirmed. Because God is love, the gospel and faith is best learned in a communal relationship of love. Because God is love, people actually grow in Christ because of the relationship of love they have in the Christian community. Now, my personal testimony. My growth as a Christian, which did involve a lot of information. I've got tons of information if you'd like to have some. But the fact is, um, it was the love of that small group in Houston that powered my growth as a Christian. When I was a young teacher and didn't know anything, they listened to me. <laughs> they had the, uh, when I, I probably told you all this story. It's one of my favorite stories, but... I worked on the railroad for a lot of years in the summertime swinging a spike mall. And uh, when you do that, you have a fairly large vocabulary of curse words that you are able to use. <laughs> My foreman had an even larger vocabulary than I had. And uh, one of the men that was important to me is a guy named Danny Taylor. He, I was his lawyer. And we were in a business meeting one day, and he, the, the other side was acting up, but I was actually being mean as I could be. And Danny and I, we took a break, went out to lunch, and Danny looked over and said, you know, Chris, we're Christians. I don't think we can curse like that anymore. That's all he said. But that was the end for me. I was like, yep, Danny, I think you're right. Now, if Danny had taught that in a Sunday school class, it might not really have taken. But in that, that moment at lunch, believe me, it took. Kathy knows that doesn't mean that I don't go back to being a... Uh, a railroad guy every once in a while. Um, but um, people grow in a relationship of love. And one reason I could take, a, and did for a long time, take a lot of advice from Danny is because I knew that Danny loved me. I knew that Danny cared about me. I knew that he wanted me to be successful. He wanted me to be able to achieve the things I wanted to achieve. And so that love carried the information. Is that a good line? Love carries discipleship information. And without love, it's just information. And, and honestly, doesn't cover very well. All right. Secondly, God is light. That is, God is eternal wisdom. And therefore, faith is best shared with patience and with wisdom and with restraint. Patience and wisdom and restraint. Not, not everything we want to say can we say to a new believer right away. You know? 
Uh, and we have to be patient with new believers because what is discipleship? It's a process. And there, it's going to be like this all the days of our life, by the way. Uh, and so we have to be patient with people as we bring them along in the Christian faith. And that requires some wisdom about what we say and don't say, what we do and don't do, and some restraint when we really would like to slap them up beside the head. And shouldn't. All right. So here's some um, final things. So God wants his church to make disciples everywhere and everyone. Uh, in a couple of weeks, you're going to learn the Great Commission. That go in the Great Commission is a participle in Greek. So it actually is what's called an imperative participle. Uh, but it can mean as you are going. So Jesus is saying, as you're going, in other words, you're going, right? Everybody here is going to go somewhere after church. Well, maybe, maybe a few people stay here forever. But, uh, but everybody's going somewhere. As you're going, make disciples. So he wants us to go, and we are going to go. We're all going to go somewhere. He wants us to make disciples everywhere and everyone. God is not a respecter of persons. He doesn't really have standards. <laughs> or for one thing, I wouldn't be in the church, and Paul wouldn't be either. Uh, teach them the fullness of Christ. Teach them the fullness of what, who Christ is and baptizing them into the church of Jesus Christ, getting them into the fellowship of the church. You know, I'm sure many of us have had this situation. Um, when young people, including some of my children, drift away from the Christian faith, it starts with a drift away from church. It does. The church is not unimportant. It's crucial. Uh, once again, it was that fellowship of Christians in Houston that kept me on the rails long enough to where I knew what the rails were <laughs> and could stay on the rails on my own. <laughs> but th that church kept me together for 14 years. Uh, and then I went off to seminary. So we need to let people know the church is important. It is important to be. It's important to be here every week. Now, not because you're getting some star in your crown for being here every week, but because, I don't know about you, but my Christian walk sometimes goes down during the course of the week, and I need a little recharge. Uh, and, and the church is not just a worship service. It's a set of relationships, and I need my Christian brothers and sisters. Maybe even worse than I need the worship service. So, remember, it is God who does the work, okay? In the Acts version of the Great Commission, he says, you are going to receive power, the potential to make disciples. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, enough power to be my witnesses wherever you are led. By the way, that's my translation, so it's not probably what your Bible says. And he says, remember, I will be with you all the way to the end of time. Remember that there won't be a time when the Holy Spirit is not with you. Um, now, as for questions here in just a minute. So, I like to say about disciple making, and it's at the conclusion of the introduction, that there are two things to keep in mind. God is love, and the gospel is transmitted in love. 
which means that all forms of force or violence are excluded. Okay? Uh, I spent my life as a lawyer, so I'm familiar with this fact. Not all force is physical. Some force is mental. <laughs> okay? So, the gospel's carried by love. God is love, and we don't have to force people into belief by some strategy or some argument uh, of ours. Uh, and it largely doesn't work. I was a corporate lawyer for a long time, and those, if anybody here was a corporate lawyer, back in the day we used to have to go to the printers, and we spent all night at the printers, and we would proofread, and then we would send stuff into the printers to be reprinted, and we had nothing to do but argue about stuff, usually politics and religion, until the drafts came back. And in all those arguments, I never brought anybody to Christ. <laughs> they were just arguments. <laughs> they were just arguing. We were just arguing, just because that was what we do between drafts. Uh, and so, ar arguing mental force... Second thing is, God is wisdom. God is light. God is pure and unadulterated wisdom. Which means that what we say to people needs to be wise. It needs to be wise. And we also need to let people know that the gospel is not illogical. It's translogical, okay? God is bigger than our logic, okay? But it's not illogical. That is to say, stupidity uh, is not a Christian virtue. Okay? The stupid answers to questions are not Christian virtues. Okay? Uh, God is all wisdom, and God is in wisdom. He, in wisdom, he created the world, we're told in Proverbs. In wisdom, he sustains the world. And I can assure you, in wisdom, he will bring the world to its completion. And so we should always be thinking carefully that we behave wisely and that we give wise advice to people. Um, lots of Christians give lots of bad advice to people. Uh, and we should be careful about that. Um, so, any, more, any questions? We're actually at the end and have time for questions. Questions? Oh, come on. Stump the chump. <laughs> Yes. What I've always known the term cheap grace, and I value that um, and uh, that thinking. However, that doesn't—that is not a requirement or of, of salvation. Am I correct? Well, so here's what I like to say. Let's go back to the. I think you've got it, pal. I'm not sure. Paul might have it. Um, so the great example Paul uses over and over again is Abraham, right? It's Abraham. And we're going to read these verses in a few weeks, and I'll probably get it a little bit wrong, but in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, I think, he says, Abraham believed God, and then what did he do? Righteousness. But what did he do? He left. He left. He did something. Which is why James says faith without works is dead because faith is not an intellectual ascent. It's trust. The Hebrew of that root word is trust, meaning it is believing God to the extent that you lean on God and walk with God, and that requires that I do something. That I do something. You know, for a long time I thought God had called me to seminary, but I didn't do anything <laughs> except just suffer. Uh, 
it was only when, and it's amazing, the minute Kathy and I took a step, one step, toward going to seminary, God opened up all the doors. And believe me, it was a lot of doors. We had four children. We had no money. Uh, we had lots of doors that needed to be opened for that to happen. And God opened all those doors when we took a step. So I want to tell you, cheap grace is just teaching people to Jesus is God. Hebrews, I think it is, tells us the demons know that. <laughs> and they tremble, okay? So it's not enough just to, okay, Jesus is God. I have to have faith. And faith means trust, and faith inevitably means action. There's no faith without some change, right? Um, so that's a good thing. So cheap grace, and, and our Amer we're American churches, and particularly the most conservative American churches, are guilty of this major time. But in the Lutheran tradition, it was especially a, troublesome for Bonhoeffer because Luther made this huge division between faith and works because he was coming out of Catholicism. Uh, and so Luther made this huge division between faith and works, which, in the, which was just part of the German church experience from that point forward until the Second World War. By the way, when we get to the end, we're going to learn a little bit about what Dietrich Bonhoeffer thought at the end of his life. There will be more to that. Yes, sir. Did you have a question? Any other questions? So a little bit about the the book. The book, the book, the book, the book, the book, the book. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You mentioned Bill Hyman's uh, I'm a fan of his, but I really did before he fell, I really respect him because I don't remember this. He wrote a book called The Reveal. Yeah. After twenty five years and that was held up as the model church, you know, they were packing them in and they did a survey of their church, Willow Creek basic beliefs of Christian faith on it. And they realized nobody knew anything. That they had not, they had packed them in, but nobody was a disciple. Nobody was a disciple. And he wrote that, I thought, I respect him because, wow, he revealed that he was a failure. They, but that's what a lot of churches, as long as you can get bodies, bucks, and buildings, those are the three things a lot of pastors are tempted to think, everything's okay. The money's coming in, the pews are back, and you're in a building campaign. Everything must be great. I read a book recently. So one of the things, that I, I can't remember the church, which is a good thing, but it, it was a pastoral moral failure. Um, the session was so broken because they realized that the fastest growing period in this church's history was while this pastor was having this extramarital affair, which means that a lot of church growth is all about testosterone and this image of this powerful guy in the pulpit. <laughs> uh, and that's, by the way, that's something all pastors have, we have to, all pastors have to fight that. Uh, that's, believe me, that's the temptation. Um, and you have to fight that because you can get there. You can get there. Um, a little bit about the book, since we have a minute or two. Um, so <clears throat> this is my last real copy. Um, and it, it has to go to John King or he won't be able to teach. Um, but I did publish this book, and it can be bought on the Internet. I'm going to encourage you not to do it right now. Um, we have a mission, a mission in Mexico through this church, and right now it's being translated into Spanish. And in getting it ready to go to the translator, 
I realized some problems with it. Uh, and so I've been rewriting the book, correcting a few errors, and adding back three chapters that were excluded at the suggestion of someone who is one of my dearest friends, but they were wrong. Um, and uh, and um, so I, uh, I'm going to put those three chapters back in. You will not need the book to come to class. I think I'm looking at the two main teachers. I would be right about that, wouldn't I? Uh, because Paul and we'll be sure you have something that you can not need the book for. But I hope that by the time the class is over, I'm nearly ready to let you see another draft of it. Uh, and you will have seen the three chapters that were admitted, you will have actually had lessons on by that time. So it'll be more meaningful for you. Um, Anything else? I think we really do need to pray for rain. Kathy and I flew from Colorado Friday or Thursday, and when you get down to where you can see the land north of San Antonio, there's just nothing but brown. It's just baked, baked. Uh, and, um, and I know water's short in various places in Texas right now. And I might add, this goes all the way up to the Midwest where the corn crop is not very good this year because of the bad weather. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time we've had together. We thank you for your servants throughout the ages, and maybe particularly Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who at 39 years old lost his life in your service. Uh, we thank you for his example. We thank you for his wisdom and teaching. And we thank you for the way in which he has motivated people to think about discipleship. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would be with this class. We're starting a journey, it's a long journey, uh, uh, towards learning more about what it means both to be a disciple and to be a disciple maker. And we pray that you would bless the class during the next 16 weeks or so, uh, that we might learn and internalize uh, what you want us to know. Uh, please uh, watch over the class and its members uh, this is August, so we know that lots of people will be traveling during the course of this month. Be with them and watch over them. Uh, we pray that those who are able to escape this heat would be able to do that for a little while uh, and be able to get some relaxation. And now as we go to church, we ask that you would bless our worship service, bless the pastors of this church, and watch over them. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.